Welcome to Live in Air Podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by liveinthere.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number four, and I'm interviewing Buddy Fichera, a corporate coach, meditation teacher, and long-term Buddhist practitioner. Buddy provides consulting and coaching solutions to individuals and organizations desirous of growth and well-being. He's a Gallup certified coach. Buddy is an experienced businessman and meditator. He has practiced with John Kabat-Zinn and Tony Sarubiku. Besides practicing in the Thai forest tradition of Buddhism, he oversees two meditation centers located in Fort Worth and Austin, Texas. In this episode, you will learn the difference between mindfulness and meditation from a Buddhist standpoint, the role of right view in meditation, the four types of actions according to Buddhism, and where we should focus our attention. Hi, buddy. How are you feeling today? I'm well. I'm doing well, thanks. That's great to hear. Uh, there are a lot of interesting things I want to ask you, but before that, could you just briefly talk about your background? What do you do and how did you come through meditation? Well, background is uh, principally business from the computer software industry. I started out as a software engineer, and then I uh, evolved into more of a diversified business background as I built that company and later on um, was employed by others that invested in various companies. And so I did a lot of turnaround work, growth work, going into companies and helping uh, shape them. So more, I became more of a consultant uh, to business diversified industry consultant. Um, well, during the consulting phase, I spent a lot of time with the Covey Leadership Foundation, which Stephen Covey had written that book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I um, taught that for a while as leadership consulting. Then in around 2000, uh, my oldest son, um, AJ, introduced me to uh, practicing Buddhism, and in particular meditation. So uh, it was kind of a continuation of the self-help leadership program that I had started with Covey. So that's, that's kind of how that began. And what Buddhist meditation were you doing at that time then? It was Zen meditation. It was actually a, a visit to a monastery in Fort Worth, Texas that was uh, practicing uh, Zen from uh, Vietnamese Zen. Okay. So that's from the Thich Nhat Hanh lineage? No, it was actually uh, Thich Than too. Actually, he's based out of uh, Vietnam, but probably the largest uh, sect of Zen. Uh, he was involved with the revival of Zen in Vietnam. Uh, Thich Than too is he's close with Thich Nhat Hanh. They're, uh, they're friends, but uh, a little bit different disciplines. I'm actually practicing within the Thai forest tradition of uh, Hinayana or Theravada Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Any, any particular teacher that is in that lineage is connected to Yes, uh, Tenasero Bhikkhu, Ajahn Jeff, his actual uh, American name is Jeffrey de Graff, but he runs the Meta Forest Monastery just north of San Diego, and he's uh, my current teacher. Okay. I interview many people, and I see that meditation means different things for different people. For some people, it's a way to de-stress and to be more emotionally balanced. For other people, it's more of a way of life. And it's part of a deeper seeking for enlightenment or awakening. What is the role of meditation in your life? Um, I would say I would fall under the second category that you outlined. 
you know, it was part of a continuation of truth seeking, I guess I'd consider my, my path from early as I can remember. Hmm. Do you have any story where mindfulness or, or meditation saved you big time? Just being introduced to it has is, is been a, um, a saving grace. You know, 15 years of practice to look back. When I first came to it, I, 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 that insight had come to me how important and, uh, an aspect of, or dimension of my experience and how fortunate I was to come across it. Because I, I guess I had realized um, pretty early on that, you know, trying to change the habits and practices through conventional, psychological, or the Covey method that I was working on was really limiting. If change were to take place and truth were to be found, that um, it would take a, a stable and quiet mind. So um, a practice of meditation was essential. I see. And in your journey of, of seeking and meditation, was there a, a moment where your personal practice shifted into a deeper level or into an awakening? I was um, actually walking in a, in a garden with the, the teacher at the time. It was a, a nun who had come to know was a Zen master, but you never knew that, or I never knew that then. And I was talking to her about my past, and I looked at her and I said, you know, through all of the times of working through my character and trying to improve, I don't think I, I really changed anything. She looked at me really kindly. So she was only about five foot tall. She looked up at me and said, uh, you know, how could it have um, you were wrestling with an illusion? And just those words, it just struck me like a brick. It's just I know I knew at that point that I'd been going in the wrong direction um, in terms of trying to direct my thoughts in, in that kind of fashion towards a self-help uh, approach. So is it right to say that you realize that you're trying to fix the problems on, on their same level? Yes, I was the one creating the problems. It was a shift of realizing that the problems were all self-induced. You know, it was just a humbling experience to know that uh, at that point you really needed to reach out and, and trust someone else that verifiably was demonstrating what, what I was desiring. And till that point, I was still relying on my own scripting and my own approach, whatever I could read conceptually to try to continue to make myself. So it looks kind of foolish now, but it was the way I operated most of my adult life. Would you say that those uh, practices, those self-help personal development practices, did they prepare you for the Buddhist insight or not? That's an interesting question. That's, that's really, and I've pondered that quite a bit. Of course, in my path, it did because that you know that was a condition preceding that day in the garden. It obviously played some role in what I had, but it's it, it's hard to put that on any kind of ontological view of the world and say you know people need self-help before they you know can come to this understanding. Um, again, I'm relating to my own experience. There was some of that. I guess it wasn't as much as the self-help, as much the desire to find the truth. That burning desire, I think, was what created the seed for that type of um, wisdom to be passed. So, so I understood what she was saying. Um, I've just been striving, and you know, mainly I would say from uh, failing and stress associated with the trying. It was like knowing what not to do at that point, when it was obvious that you had to go the other way, not necessarily uh, trust your own thoughts and ideas you know, really learn to take that machine that was the mind and develop it 
versus it's almost the difference between what I would consider the operating system of the computer and the application program. Hmm. To that point, to that point, I was writing Excel, you know, spreadsheets and word processing, and I wasn't working on the operating system. I see. Um, so Buddhism would be a way to upgrade the operating system of the mind. Would you say? Yeah, it would give you the highest leverage in terms of transformation. You know, that's that's what's processing everything, from my experience. And um, it's not mutually exclusive of the application. It's just um, not as um, effective as working on the processor itself. In one of our previous talks, you mentioned about four types of actions, which is this uh, Buddhist framework. All our actions can be classified in what we like. Or dislike, and what bring good and bad results. I, I see that there there are basically four choices, you know, um, and that's based upon the combinations of, like you say, cause and effect of things we like to do that either bring us good or bad results, and things we don't like to do. So option one would be things that we like to do that bring us good results, and option two would be things we don't like to do that bring us bad results. Option three would be things we like to do um, that bring us bad results. And option four would be things we don't like to do that could bring us uh, good results. So it's just basic cause and effect. And I was asked um, during some level of teaching that you really, there's two that you want to pick that where the leverage is and which two. And I picked like most people, one and four when asked that question, because you look at the likes um, and the don't likes. You know, one and two are no brainers. If you like doing something, and it's bringing you good results, then there's not much you need to do to work on that. Uh, if you don't like doing something and it doesn't bring you good results, another no-brainer. So you're really left with three and four, the things you don't like to do, which bring you the good results, and those are the things that you basically avoid. I think we're familiar with those types of things. That's like, yeah, I really need to go exercise today. I don't like doing it, but it's going to produce my results. I, I think I pretty much got that one down. Um, but three was the blind side, the things I like doing that don't get me the results. Um, and there's your habits and where the work of the practice, I believe, points you towards. And of course, that's that's the growth as you as you go. And I'm sure you know, you, you find out pleasures and, and cravings that you have um, as you get more and more honest with your experience and closer to your intentions. You begin to see that there's a lot more that's driving you. And until you see those, um, you, you're, you're just not in a position to uproot them. So I work on, you know, the threes and fours, you know, the things I like to do. Um, that's what basically I have to abandon and what I need to develop are the things that I don't like doing. And they work hand in glove. It's basically abandoning and developing as, as you build the skills. And that to me was a very simple um, extraction from what I consider the, the heart of the, the Buddhism being the Four Noble Truths. You know, things that cause stress and the way out of stress. Your relief is uh, is there when you practice through those, through the causes, and you have to get through the symptoms to get to the causes, of course. So you, you're working through the stress as your teacher. Things aren't getting you what you want because they're producing stress. So you have to work kind of through the back door, I think, is through the stress being your teacher. And then just continue to, to observe that and, and see where the self-induced stress is coming from by chasing the experience, being with the experience as best you can, and then trying to understand its cause and let go of its cause. So when you speak of uh, allowing stress to be your teacher, to kind of uh, learn from suffering, what are the causes of suffering and what you can do to 
to remove that suffering? Yes, yes. And, and trying to be present with causation as best you can. Um, and, and what are the, the choices and intentions and perceptions and, and feelings and all, and all the more subtle aspects as you progress in your practice? What are the associated uh, factors that are, that are creating this distress? And as you pull it apart, it's, it's, it's quite a complex model, as I'm sure you know. It's not it's a mm. equivalent to like it's trying to solve chaos theory, but it's, um, it's, it's got relief along the way because each time you let go of um, and you see yourself participating in the dance, there's relief. So if we get back to those actions that are the actions we like to do, but that brings us bad results, how can we use meditation and how can we use the Buddha's pointing to deal with these actions? What are the tools that we can use for it? Well, it's the same. It's the same logic that you bring into your meditation. Uh, first of all, the objective in the meditation, overall objective, to me, is to make it a pleasurable experience. That's the first one, and I and I learned this the hard way because I tried to grind it out like most other people that I've come in contact with. And because generally speaking, the reason we choose not to meditate is because it's more pleasurable to not. Because I'm I'm assuming most people are like myself. They do most actions out of pleasure. So if you have any chance of developing a practice, you've got to bring into it the desire to um, make it a pleasurable experience. Keeping that as a goal, now you see where stress is being caused um, in your meditation, and you work to develop skills and let go of your involvement that's in your way to, to allow that to be a pleasurable experience. So that's the same thing that you would do in ordinary life as what you do on the cushion. So the main skill would be to let go of the causes of stress rather than to try to transform them? Yes, and, and of course you'd have to identify stress itself and be with it initially. So by working through the breath and through the body, uh, we establish a starting point, obviously, with the breath as a friend and as a pathway to better understand the body and the stress um, through the body is my approach and my experience. So we are looking for where the stress is in the body. Well, first of all, we got to be with it and we work through it. You know, you'll start and develop a comfortable spot. That's why I believe you start with a single spot is you get comfortable in one spot and then um, you kind of spread out from that point and you find out where the where the stuck points are in your body um, through tracing the, the energy levels through your breath, through your body. And where you see the, stock, the, the sticking points is basically where the stress is, is being created. Um, and you have to witness that and develop skills. Um, and it's most of the time letting go and allowing uh, that energy and to be hooked up and travel and relax. And, you know, when you stay at it, you can make it a quite pleasurable experience. That whole feeling that you ultimately get to during the meditation is, is a very pleasant feeling very stable feeling from which to begin inspecting the way the mind works. So you have to kind of root out the stress that's inherent in your body before you can really turn itself on the mind and start to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the stress is just too loud. You cannot see things clearly, right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, I, love, I love the word you chose there. It was loud. And that's, to me, why you have to be very uh, aware of your other aspects of your life, because if you're creating a lot of uh, friction in other areas of your life, you're just taking one step forward and three steps backwards in your meditation. It really has to be a total approach towards living to, to make progress on the cushion. Right. Now, many people speak of mindfulness and of meditation as 
kind of interchangeable words as being the same thing. My understanding is that they are not the same thing. And I think from a Buddhist perspective, they are, there's a kind of a clear difference between these two things. What is your, your view on this? Could you expand a little bit? Well, my view is highly influenced by the teachings of the Buddha taught through the Theravada tradition. But in the way I understand mindfulness, it's one of the dimensions of the Eightfold Path of practice. Its root mindfulness is in the, the Pali word sati, S-A-T-I, which is a, the ability to bring something to mind. So it's a recollection feature. To recall something to mind is what I understand mindfulness to be. So in the context of meditation, I would be initially bringing my breath, my single point to mind. That would be the mindfulness act. But by itself, mindfulness is just bringing me to a point. The actual focus on the point would be alertness, you know, the ability to be alert, which is a different factor of mind. So mindfulness brings me to my object, being alert and paying attention, which would be the sampajana, according to the Pali language, would be the act of actually watching what was going on, what inherently is going on. And then, of course, you've got the whole issue of um, ardency, of doing it in the correct way or the effort associated with it. So mindful, alert, and ardent is, you know, straight out of the Satipatthana Sutra. Mindfulness would be more uh, remembering. Yes, it'd be an act of memory. So we kind of uh, glom it together as non-judgmental awareness. We're really not breaking these things apart. It's not a very discerning view. It's kind of a, a general view of mindfulness. And I don't see that as um, productive when, as we're trying to develop the skill around it. It's an ax when you're dealing with a scalpel. It's too much of an overall term when it's, it's simply the act of bringing something to mind. And when it's simply bringing something to mind, that begs the question is, what are you bringing to mind? You know? Uh, there's times when you bring certain things to mind, like why did you do things? Um, you know, bring attention to uh, the context of, of your practice. Just mindfulness by itself is a very important skill. You know, I'm not trying to downplay, but it's not the whole piece. It's not an entire practice. All right, so if I'm going about my day and in the middle of my daily activities, I start feeling anxious or depressed. What would mindfulness be in that moment? And what would meditation be in that moment? Well, mindfulness is a part of your overall practice would be to be watching for stress. So I'm mindful of my stress as an intention for your overall practice. In particular, that moment would be to be mindful of the body to start with where the stress is, what it feels like. Reduce it to a sensation would be my practice. Uh, and then I would begin being mindful of the causes and start to look for my role in the process. You know, what's what's going on here? Again, that's just what I'm mindful of. And then how to go about it would be the effort. And being alert is that capacity to stay on top of it, stay with the actual sensation or the activity that's going on in the mind, depending upon how stable I could get myself to understand. You know, I'm first working on st stabilizing the mind when stress is there and before we start the discovery process, the investigative process. So in Buddhist practice, you spoke of the Eightfold Path. The first element of the Eightfold Path is right view or correct understanding. What does this mean and what, how does this influence meditation and mindfulness? I see right view as a couple of different levels. One is the ordinary level, that, and that's... Um, the level of karma, basically actions and consequences, intentions, actions, and results. 
is what drives. And, and I believe you have to understand that you kind of bring right view into the practice versus trying to develop right view, you know, as a result of practicing meditation. So right view is a very important aspect of the practice. And it, and it begins with understanding the role of action and the cause and effect of actions, um, in particular intentions, actions, and results on an ordinary basis. And then I think it gets to a transcendent view of fully understanding stress and its causes in all dimensions um, to a point where you're no longer bound by stress and you're awakened. Um, that would be the, the, the fully uh, transcendent right view. But you start with kind of a mundane right view, and that would be on the practical side of understanding the cause and effect of, of, of intention, action, and results of the mind. What is the cause of right view? How can people develop right view? Well, that's what was given to me. You know, that was the gift that I had, and that's what I, what I try to share with people when they're ready. That's essential, you know. I could see people sitting on a cushion for years without right view and, and having problems with it. I think I did. I mean, I'm not sure if I brought meditation without right view that I would just find right view. I'm sure there's some people that may have, but in this day and age, we've got a lot of competing thoughts going on and initiatives that if um, we're going to take up a practice and that's all the other activities that we've got going on, right view is essential. So in my particular coaching and in where I try to help people is in particular starting with right view. And in your case, you develop the right view by reflecting by yourself or by association with your teacher, by study? What was the factors involved in developing right view? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. It's looking at and slowing down enough to just understand that there's both short and long-term impact of our actions. I think most people will agree that there's free will involved with our choices, um, no matter which discipline or religion they're coming from. So when you kind of drill down into the idea of free will or choice, you know, there's the element of choice and cause and effect. You make a choice and what's the effect? So when you really talk about it, it's not a complicated uh, subject matter, which it's not a deterministic view. I don't think most people think that they're just destined and predestined for the future. I believe they, they see a role that they play. So it's not a, a very mystic thing. It, it's quite ordinary to me, right view, but it, it's so ordinary, uh, like the air in the room, you, you can't take it for granted. It's choice and the effect of choice and the outcomes associated with it. So. I just, you know, it seemed like I'd operated from right view for quite some time, but in terms of the context of what we're using meditation for, if, if we see that there's basically three dimensions of time, you know, that we're working with on an ordinary basis, there's the future, the present, and the past. So the future is created by our thoughts, um, which is the intention that precedes the actual actions in terms of bodily or verbal and then the, the results of those actions produce a behavioral trait. So you've got intention, action, and result, which covers all three aspects of time. You know, before I do it, during I'm, when I'm doing something, and then after I did it. So I think about what I'm going to do before I do it in terms of words or actions. I witness it while I'm doing it. And then I reflect back on what I did and what its impact was, both to myself or to others around me or my environment. So when we look at that way of thinking, which is basically cause and effect, that needs to be applied with meditation. They run parallel. Uh, so we're meditating in order to be more intentional or be more with our thoughts prior to our action. 
so that we can prevent the, the actions that bring suffering and stress. Yes, precisely. And this is what you teach children, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a father of three. This is what we taught kids. It's just we never turned it on ourselves completely and, and had that kind of um, training. You'd assume you'd learn something and you'd cognitively understand it and then you just execute. Well, when you really begin looking at your experience and the stress associated with it, you, that's not really the way it goes. You're not there for most of what's happening. So that's the big call to be present. But, you know, what does that mean to be present, to be mindful? We can just take that as a general term. We, we, we train our minds so we can be more with our thoughts prior to execution. You also work with coaching for corporations. How does all of this fit into that work? It's terrific. I mean, I enjoy doing it. I'm involved with people that are really want to create an, an environment where they see the corporation as, um, a, as a social entity. It, they have to have that kind of view for them to be open to this type of training, um, or else we're going to be doing the, the Microsoft Excel program consulting. Mm. You know, are we going to organize your business? Are we going to make better choices? Who does what better? What about relationships? But if we're going to talk about you know, the mind and its role in the CEO from and, and all the way through the entire organization, then we have to have well-being as a goal and the corporate's role in well-being for the individuals as well as the environment as an overriding force. If that's in place, then I've got a client. If that's not in place, then I'm from Mars and they're from Venus. Hmm. <laughs> it's hard to, to coach because I'm trying to coach on, on the mind side and we're trying to execute and i mean of course i can consult and do those things I've, i've done those most of my life but that isn't what drives me yeah apart from meditation is there any other tool that you use in your coaching uh, absolutely i mean the journaling is a big piece and overall right view of course as we've discussed and you know i built a system of coaching a platform we're accountable and we journal our intentions actions and results getting back to that prior discussion um, we have to start with that journaling because I noticed when coaching, for instance, let's say we met once a week, we were recalling or I was listening to a narrative of an individual of what they were saying happened during the week. Well, based on my own experience, I, I know that's impossible to get real data that way. I began asking people I was working with to track their intentions, actions and results in the context of what we were trying to accomplish. First of all, when you start writing it down, you're doing most of it through the rear view mirror. Um, what I mean is, is you're looking backwards, back to those three points of time I was talking about. You're looking in arrears and say, what just happened? So you write it down. And what I found was good is by writing it down, it's a good starting point towards being truthful about our intention. So you write down what happened and you try to recall what your intention was as honestly as possible. And that's a good starting point because that drives us to wanting to know more and be more present and then to get to more intention before the action takes place. So we realize kind of humbly that through recalling these things that we're not with our thoughts and our choices, um, that they're just being exercised out of habit energy. So the, I use the journaling to start and that helps us be accountable. It helps me understand what took place during the week helps the client understand the role of meditation um, or contemplation or some level of slowing down based upon the truth that, you know, most of the time you're operating, uh, trying to shut the door after the, the horse has left the barn. 
And uh, is there any book or, or DVD or some resource that you can recommend to people that have no idea about meditation and they want to go deeper into it? I would obviously uh, direct them towards my teacher and his website because all of the material is free and it's done me the world of good. Um, and that would be dhamatalks.org, D-H-A-M-M-A talks, T-A-L-K-S dot org. And all of the books and literature in that are free. Um, but in particular, the title that would make uh, most sense, um, there's a starting book that um, Tamasero Bhikkhu has just written in, in our Dharma Center that we have started. We hand that book out as a starting point. So it's called With Each, With Each and Every Breath, uh, A Guide to Meditation. And it really connects well with people. As he discusses the committee of the mind, he brings up this idea of a committee of the mind. You know, I call it the board of directors of the mind, especially when we're talking to corporate people. Um, so we start to understand and break apart that there's more than just one perspective that's going on upstairs. In this committee of the mind are your different thoughts or your different personas or, or different desires that you've hatched in the past that have produced pleasure for you. So they're competing almost, and he calls it almost like a, uh, a corrupt city council that's, mm. that's working up there in your mind, convincing you and lobbying you to do this, do this, do this. So by starting to break up that those thoughts into committee members and understanding perspective and, and recognizing that so you don't have to act on all of those thoughts. He, he does a beautiful job. And again, this is ordinary stuff before we ever get into meditation. This is ordinary issues of right view, of cause and effect, of why we do what we do. I find this very effective uh, in terms of conversation. And then when someone is ready, it's based on that level of understanding, they take up a practice of meditation. Um, and, I, and I found this to be true, Giovanni, when I set up a Dharma Center in Fort Worth Meditation, you know, retention was my biggest objective because the turnover in meditation was huge when I started. People say, I, I don't get it. That, I'm not good at meditation. That always troubled me. So I, I stopped broadcasting meditation and began with the right view approach and the, the story of intention, action, and results. And I can see Ajahn Jeff has done the same thing um, in the Committee of the Mind. His language is is more speaking to people's thought processes and the thinking side of mind. I mean, you've heard it, haven't you, that people mostly think meditation's about learning to stop thinking? Yes, that's a common myth. They're bringing that perception in. Hmm. And how, how do you dispel that myth when we know differently? It's, it's being more skillful at your thoughts, right? And learning how to, to uh, think about the right things and when and when to direct your thoughts and how to sustain them. Would you say attention. that that's, that's mostly because of a confusion like some Buddhist monks or some uh, advanced practitioners that they go into very deep and advanced stages of meditation, they experience states of being without thoughts. But then people think that that's what they should be doing from the beginning, that if they're not <laughs> achieving that, then they're not doing meditation. Right. And if that's what you're communicating you're at, I would say you've got a block in your own practice because you're speaking from your point of view. You're forgetting what it took to get to that point of what appears to be no thinking. And I say what appears to be no thinking because there's still intention at work unless you're fully enlightened. <laughs> so there's thoughts going on there. So that, I don't think that's a co correct observation and to communicate that to somebody as that's the way it is. But I think most of it happens. The initial people that hit the soil were speaking different language, so you had language breaking, break down, and you've got pictures and images of, you know, of people appearing to do nothing, when it's a very active process. I would consider it the most supreme challenge I've ever done in my life. Hmm. 
No, recently I was reading uh, about some research into meditation that was done in the 60s and the 70s. And people that were being researched at that time were very advanced uh, yogis and monks. And the researchers found that those practitioners, they had a very intense level of gamma waves in the brain happening during meditation, which is like very, very intense brain activity. At the same time that there is calmness and, and kind yeah. of silence, there is this intense brain activity. One metaphor that I, I read from uh, Ramana Maharshi, he says that it's like a, a wheel that spins so fast, it looks like it's, it's moveless. <laughs> that's, a, that's great, because that's what it feels like in the center of the vortex, doesn't it? Hmm. And you get to some degree of stillness. It feels like there's movement, but there's not. It's, I think uh, Ajahn Chah calls it uh, still water moving. <laughs> hmm. It's a strange kind of feeling, but again, if we rely on these states and we teach from these states, we're really not doing people any good because these, these are all states that are subject to uh, coming and going and part of the process of learning. Um, they're nothing to be uh, hung on as any kind of accomplishment or attainment. Obviously, they help us get to a better understanding of the way the mind works and our role and where we're creating it and learning to let go of our involvement in the whole process. But dwelling on those states is... A, sticking that lollipop out to people, which is dangerous. Dangerous to my practice, and I dare say be dangerous if I let anyone else down that path. Especially because the probably will lead to some frustration and, and giving up. Yes, I think ultimately when we get attached to the outcome in an ordinary kind of consciousness, we're going to, we're going to fail. We have to keep our head down and work on the process versus the outcome. And that means we have to understand what the process is through good teaching and good leadership. Um, and good practice ourselves, because we're actually teaching from our own personal practice point of view. That's all we can teach from, right? Yeah. Unless we, unless we want to go back to books and teach uh, Excel programs. So we, we've got our own experience. That's right. As we're approaching the end of this show, I just wanted to ask you, if you could travel back in time and meet the old version of yourself in the beginning of your journey, what advice would you give yourself? Probably uh, be uh, more... Um, inquiring, more um, understanding, try not to rush to judgment. I would say that, that that discernment quality of kind of digging and digging and digging without uh, trying to, to judge the outcome like we were just talking about. I would just uh, recognize how important that is in the overall discovery processes. Keep working and keep digging and keep asking because that's the question is the answer, you know, as the old Zen cone. The, the inquiry uh, is very important. So that inquiring, discerning mind, I would, I would say that my tendency is to, uh, is to look up and smell the roses, so to speak. And that doesn't mean that you beat yourself up, by no means. I mean, uh, and, I, and I know people listening to me could say, well, well, that sounds like a hard, you know, I've heard people that have heard me characterize that, so I, I want to kind of caution that. Again, the practice is about pleasure. It's not about beating yourself up. So the skill is learning how to look at these and discover things about yourself without taking it personal. So there's still work ahead. So the answer is not, I'm not, I'm just going to completely allow and accept everything and I'm going to um, just let go. Boy, if it was that simple, you know, we, we'd all have nirvana by now. But um, at the same time, it's not to develop any, any guilt or shame. Yes. Or to feel yeah. And, yourself. And, and that guilt or shame is just a lack of, um, view again as to what it is you're discovering. It's learning how to look at things almost like you were playing an instrument 
you wouldn't beat yourself up as much when you were looking at and learning and you know striking a key wrong learning how to play a piano you would just kind of strike it a little hard and then kind of work your way into a, a softer keystroke and, and and that's kind of the way you've got to look at your own intentions actions and results in the in the interest of improving uh, and developing that skill around those intentions actions and results it's both a free pass i mean a free pass in as much as you're letting yourself personally off the hook from judging yourself but it's not a free pass as to the work involved and i think that's a challenge uh, for many people uh, the self-criticism yeah i can understand that for some people Maybe it helps, it gives the, the necessary push to look into something. But I think more often than not, it just kills the motivation and it kills any joy that you are supposed to be having in the path. Exactly. And that's where, you know, the guidance has to be. And, and as the Dalai Lama kind of characterized, he saw a nation, he was kind of surprised, the story goes, where he uh, saw all this uh, uh, low self-esteem. He didn't even, he, coming from his culture, he didn't even know what the word low self-esteem meant. He kind of saw this self-hate in all of us. He goes, well, what is this? <laughs> you know? It's it's part of all of us, you know, because of the striving that we've all had. So, you know, it's it's it, we blame ourselves and our actions and at some deep level. And, you know, le learning to let go of that is important, but you just can't let go without taking hold of something else or else, you know, you're just artificially pampering yourself. You, you've got to find that twist of letting go the personal side and that guilt and remorse, but also continuing to discern and the intentions, actions, and results. That's where the, the skill comes in. At least that's my experience. Do you see it the same way? Yes, there's a balance and you need to strike between not being narcissistic and self-indulgent on one side and not being too self-critical and beating yourself up on the other side. It's a kind of an openness and neutrality that you can look at yourself and say, look, I did this right and I'm going to do it again, or I did this wrong and, and it's going to cause me suffering and I don't want to do it anymore. And that should be enough. There's no need for us to add any story or additional emotional content to these simple learnings, but it's, it's challenging. It is, but that's well said. I, I like the way you phrase that. All right. I think you brought a very different perspective to our listeners. If people want to learn more about you and about your coaching work, where would they go? They would go to my uh, main company, which is radix.com, R-A-D-Y-X.com. Or they could go to our charity, which is admirablefriends.org. They're interested in starting without any cost at all. It would be admirablefriends.org where they they could join a sitting group that we have going in either Fort Worth or here now in Austin, Texas. Um, but they could find more about uh, the global coaching or the, the enterprise coaching uh, at radix, R-A-D-Y-X.com. And I'll put that in the show notes for everybody. Hey, thanks to you, Bonnie. It's always good to speak with you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Take care. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at liveandair.com. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques, so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And if you have learned something valuable today, it would mean a lot to me if you leave a comment. You can follow me on Twitter at geo underscore self. And as usual, we end it with a quote. This quote is from Eckhart Tolle. Every time you create a gap in the stream of mind, the light of your consciousness grows stronger. 
one day you may catch yourself smiling at a voice in your head. This means that you no longer take the content of your mind all that seriously, as your sense of self does not depend on it.